Hello, Damon. Hey, Jeremy. How are you today? I'm doing well. You're in a barn, I hear. I'm in a barn. Yeah, a pole barn, as it were. Wow. What does that mean? I'm not exactly sure. Okay. I've been, I've been saying it a long time, and if you had to press me, I, I wouldn't be able to tell you what It's what like it, a heirloom tomato. It's an heirloom barn. <laughs> I get you. Right. I want to talk to you today about the stories we tell about our barns and our tomatoes and our society and ourself. Are you up for that? Oh, that's a lot of stories, but yeah, let's okay. let's give it let's give it a crack. So we talked about writing last time, and I want to talk about storytelling. Stories we tell ourselves, stories we're told, stories we tell others. And I was prompted by this question that I've been having over the last several months which is what story am I in? I think my brain just wants to know what is the plot. <laughs> and so we can sort of try to guess what's happening next or how to interpret everything. And I think we process through stories. So let me give you the three stages that I've articulated so far, if I may. Mm -hmm. So when the pandemic started and during the lockdown, total quarantine, whatever you want to call it, I felt like I was in a spaceship story. One of those things where it's the family at sea or on an island or, as I'm saying, in a spaceship, just totally locked in, locking the whole rest of the world out, working with your provisions, mm -hmm. very interior, and only seeing other people through our comm link, if you will. Mm -hmm. Then we started to open up a bit and we sure weren't really sure how to do that i would say we're probably still not sure how to do that and we could go out and we would see other people but we had to like totally avoid them <laughs> mm -hmm. and then it felt like i was in a ghost story mm -hmm. so like there were these other families or couples or individuals that were on the trail or on the street or on the sidewalk or in the stores, but it was very one at a time and in parallel and they were passing. And it was like, I wasn't supposed to talk with them. I wasn't supposed to engage with them. We didn't interact. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if they were the ghost or I was the ghost, but that's where it felt like I'm seeing people, but we can't connect. Now it feels like I'm in a zombie <laughs> <movie>. <laughs> where we're interacting, we are connecting and we might kill each other. I have no idea who's the zombie. I might be a zombie. Do I send the kid to school, to camp? What happens when my wife goes to work? What happens if I go to a store or a restaurant? What happens if I talk to a neighbor on the street and he leans forward and he's no longer six feet away? He's four and a half. Mm -hmm. And so now I feel like we're in a zombie movie. And that's just in my interactions with other people. Internally, I've had this other plotting like, oh, I'm in a Robinson Crusoe adventure mm. or I don't know where I am. I'm lost. I'm in Groundhog Day or I'm in this big struggle and I've got to figure out myself and my life and my purpose and my role politically, economically, philosophically, and so forth. So I started to get flattened by these stories, even as I was starting to see them. Tell me how stories come up for you, for your clients, the power of stories, and if we can take some of that power back positively for ourselves, or if we can escape the need to be in a story altogether. Wow. Yeah. That, what, those are great uh, ways to <laughs> the imagery around just being in a zombie because these are, these are real everyday challenges for, for those of us who potentially are influenced by the stories that we tell ourselves and maybe even more influential is that, we've created narratives that no longer square with the moment. And so I think that we, in terms societally speaking, when there's chaos, those that have always lived in chaos tend to be the ones that seem to be the most focused. They, they know how to handle 
disruption and loss and turbulence and chaos. And those aren't necessarily always the highest moral or ethical people in, in a society. And so going from spaceship, which I actually started something similar. The joke I used to make was like the Gilligan's Island theme at the beginning where it was mm. like a three hour tour <laughs> and then the storm comes in and then they're stranded on a desert island. And at the beginning felt like that to me, like, oh, wow, we're like, we went off on an, on an adventure, but now we're adrift. So those stories are both very powerful and also I think could lend some support if we're willing to create new hybrid versions of some of the stories that we've told. Mm. And so I think that's really at root when I speak with clients, yeah, Damon, but it wasn't supposed to go this way. We're on a five-year track. We've done all the work the visionary stuff. We've got the culture that we want. We're building, building, building. And this doesn't fit into how we're going to continue that storyline. And so that is a big loss. It's anxiety provoking, etc. So then it's almost like these two images of the more of the macro storyline, business culture. And as you're saying, like just fitting in with society. And then there's the in the, the micro storylines, which are sometimes much more difficult to address or even to become aware of because our thoughts are really sneaky and our unconscious runs a lot of our operating system. So what triggers us, for example, may seem to be in some conflict with our story, but it also might be a, a clue or an indicator for us to take a, a more discerning look at what triggered us in the first place and why. So seeing the bigger stories, recognizing your own stories, and then Scott Barry Kaufman talks about meta motivations in ways that make people think about themselves a little bit more. So for example, do you have a devotion or a calling outside of yourself? Are you just self-interested or do you have a devotion or calling outside of that? This is one of these meta motivations. Can you, are, are you currently seeking peak, peak experiences? Third one is committed to the value of just being and then committing to truth, goodness, beauty, justice, meaningfulness, playfulness, aliveness, excellence, simplicity, elegance, and wholeness as ultimate goals in themselves. So whether the story is happening outside of our control, how are we showing up? And that is an open-ended question. There's been somewhat of a paradigm shift. And so we need to be able to pivot faster than corroborate an old storyline. I remember Chrissy giving me this technique that someone had given her, which was three questions, which when you're telling a story that's punishing, one is, is this true? <laughs> hmm. And two is, is there another story that's also true? <laughs> mm -hmm. And what was the third? I don't remember the third. <laughs> <laughs> but... Just the idea of even saying yes and. So to ground it, can you think of a specific example of there's a story and maybe this is, this is hurting more than it's helping? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think a lot of people who have can claim achievement have had to weather a lot of storms and stick with their original story that you can see in most people who have been successful. There've been a lot of sacrifices. There've been a lot of getting knocked down. There's been, you know, you hear a lot of language around what's your North star, what's your true North, what are, where are your values, etc. But when somebody or a company self identifies so closely with a story, I almost feel like the story 
needs to be more uh, flexible in nature. Because if it's, for example, I have a client who is in the creative industries, fashion, design world, and loves to travel and is, feeds off of it, finds flow in and travel, finds creativity in travel, and has been holed up in one spot for right. half the year and has been a shambles, not able to produce. And some of the criticism the self-criticism was, I'm too busy to produce as much as I want. Now I have all the time in the world and I can't produce anything. Right. And so the story got in the way, I think, in that situation. I have a friend who has a business that's based on events and all the sales are doing really cool promotional and community building things at events. Mm -hmm. And now we don't have events like that. And so business after just growth, 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 hard one for 15, 20 years is nil. Mm -hmm. And that's just not in his control. And that's frustrating. And I've heard his frustrations, his fears, his lament, and I, it all makes sense to me. And I want to be sympathetic and just say, yeah, that's just true. That is the situation you're in. Mm -hmm. And also, it doesn't make everything that happened in the past not have happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. All the cool moments at events you created and the business you drove and the employees that you, know, you made their lives possible economically for years and your own learning path and process and invention and relationships, even if those are all not something that's possible to continue right now. Those all did happen. <laughs> yeah. I think of that even just with relationships, people, when they break up, I'm like, well, that makes sense. That's mm -hmm. great. I think the part before you break up is often the harder part where it's just bad, but you haven't made the leap. But at the same time, you don't have to leap to that other story, which is like, it was terrible. It was bad because we broke up. Like, there were really good things. There were reasons you were together. There were positive moments. It doesn't make a lie of that 15 minutes, 15 weeks, 15 months, 15 years that you were together. Mm -hmm. So the stories where we are now doesn't negate the past either. Mm -hmm. Right. And I almost feel like the most effective way is to ask then an open-ended question about what story do you want to tell now? Mm. Because, right, as I see it with your friend with the event space and such, I like building up with what you've already accomplished. That's powerful. And that was, was real and is real and can be activated. And in a way, it can be activated to help craft a new story. And the new story somehow has to begin with we got knocked down our whole model was upended and through all of that we found some creative little nooks and crannies to reintroduce ourselves into the market in ways that were needed and there we were filling a hole a new hole that that came forth because events on the whole have to tell new stories as well. And using that to activate and using the same tool, storytelling, we were, we were great because of events. And now we're great because we were able to pivot off of events onto something else. Does it have to be we? Can you just say that whole world's blown up? I'm going to start another world, but with that experience? Or is it, it just seems like maybe, I don't know, Delta Airlines isn't going to be the same <laughs> than they were before if people aren't flying. And obviously that's the mega example of <laughs> event space or travel space versus your client or my friend. <laughs> and maybe they will in five years and the government will keep them afloat in the meantime. But where do you make that line? 
in yeah. your story and in your action between perseverance and shifting, making a giant leap to something totally different. And it's like, this is a past life I had mm-hmm. within my life. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of us have had, as we get older, multiple past lives. Mm-hmm. But transitions are hard, but often on the other side of the transition, it's positive. But if we're clinging to that story or we're like, I just have to pivot and navigate it, that that's hard too. And there's so much judgment too if we're on that hero's journey and we're like, well, all these icons that I know, I know they, they got knocked down and they got up again. Do you always have to get up again? <laughs> or mm-hmm. when when is that not the right path? Mm, right. Well, first, I don't. Delta Airlines is not one of my clients, so I haven't had to to venture into you know dead companies walking <laughs> necessarily. But yeah, I mean, it, you make a good point, and a story hopefully is something that activates some deeper truth that you that one realized or created or grew inside of themselves and had very sound reason and rationale for crafting that specific story. So yeah, everyone individually can approach life. It's N equals one. No one's ever been you. Hopefully you have your own stories. And from there, I actually think one practice that's effective is a transition type of practice. So it, let's say the storyline, the world crumbles. Now we're in zombie land. We're Delta Airlines. The one thing that, that I would advise if they were a client of mine is let's assess reality with a calm nervous system. Hmm. Let's assess reality when we are alert and, the, and we're not hooked to our stories let's let's give ourselves permission to set our stories aside for a moment and do a little uh inventory of what's going on in our within our company within our industry within the world all all over the place and i think that's valuable data and it also gives us a practice so that we don't have to just willy-nilly come up with some other story and create some false bravado around it because we didn't build it on a solid foundation. One of my very favorite quotes to the point where I written it out on an index card and keep it next to my desk is on this topic. Could I share it with you? Yeah, absolutely. It's from a writer named William Upsky Wimsatt. W-I-M-S-A-T-T. The hardest lesson I keep having to learn There is no substitute for loving myself, respecting myself, and being true to myself. There are no shortcuts. You can't use anything external to substitute for inner love. And then he goes on, and this is to your point. You are where you are for reasons, many outside your control. Your job is not to judge yourself. Your job is to be honest about where you are, wherever that is, to be gentle with yourself and to daydream possible paths to get where you want to be. Mm, Beautiful. And maybe the daydreaming is the (laughs) writing that new story in that transition. And the gentle is the calm. And of course, the honest is the honest. (laughs) Yeah, I I do think that there's so much value in, in productively daydreaming, intentionally allowing yourself to brainstorm some some new thoughts, some new ideas without being too harshly judgmental back into that practice zone, if you will. And I think those are really positive, liberating ways to allow one to, to embark on a new practice like that. And he said, your job is to love yourself. And I, I think that that's a really important thing. And I think it's really squarely in line with what I'm seeing in the sphere of the clients I have and just the space that I tend to work in as that I do believe that those who are capable of shifting their stories because the whole story changed on on these meta levels is going to be 
way up there as we look back in 10 years, like, oh, who, who pivoted out of that time in a capable way, right? Who got the jump off the line when everything opened back up again? So the storyline, I think, is a big one. And the other one about loving yourself, I think that a really big one is going to be self-compassion. The ability to assess what's really going on with you, not in some soft, squishy way, but in just as you would with your best friend. You don't always agree with everything your best friend does, but more times than not, you're going to have that person's back even when it was their fault. And that's, and you're going to see it clearly. And that is really uh, a huge skill now is to be able to try a few things, craft some new storylines, but when they fall flat or when, when something happens that we're able to comfort ourselves and soothe ourselves and to validate ourselves but also to protect ourselves and then provide for ourselves and motivate ourselves. And I think that that big six, that, that's actually from Dr. Kristen Neff, who is the world most expert on self-compassion. And there's some beautiful activities to prompt us to be able to do those things. And so I bring that up because I feel like it lends nicely to the charge that you hold, which is to love yourself. And, and yet I think all too often, we aren't exactly sure how to do that. And let's be honest, one of the biggest stories we tell hundreds of times a day, thousands of times a day mm-hmm. is, I suck. I screwed that up. I'm a piece of shit. Like, why am I doing this? That must sound so stupid. He must be so annoyed. It's not going to work out. Dan Harris has that book, 10% Happier, Mm -hmm. and his working title the whole time was The Asshole in My Head. (laughs) Mm -hmm. And we are getting that you're a piece of shit story over and over and over again. And we can be conscious of it or not. And often when people start meditating, what I have read and what I have heard in conversation, what I have experienced is it's not that it goes away. It's that we become conscious of the asshole dad in our head, the you're not, you're not good enough, kid. Get back into it or you're <laughs> going to be a failure. And I think that to be that better parent, if you will, caregiver to ourself is why that self-compassion is so important. It's not just in isolation like, oh, you need a pat on the head for no reason. It's you're getting this alternate story so consciously, which is part of the in desperation why people are led to these stories that are fear-based but are part of a larger collective and blaming somebody else for why you don't feel complete. So it's like, be complete, get this product, or be complete, follow our company, or be complete, join us in hating on (laughs) them. Mm. And that's some of the dangers of these stories. And internally, I think when we have these bumps or these transitions, it's really ruling to be like, well, what is my new story? Mm. And not get drawn into a story that's false, but somewhat satisfying. <laughs> a junk food story, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Which, which is almost like a safety net. Create this story that just feels comfortable. And even though it's not something that we, that's, that's the best thing for us, it's ours. <laughs> and so we use it. I, I have been contemplating so i guess to to express what i'm about to say i'll i'll start by saying that over i want to say 6 maybe 7 years ago my my best friend who i grew up with i'm an only child he and i both have these italian last names we we just were buddies right away and we were it was almost telepathic and we had that fairy tale we both went did the summer job on the same island and then we went to the same college and we we both moved to San Francisco and we both married fr- women who were friends we had we had this whole thing which and and so there was just an inherent sense of just a deep deep connection right with another yeah, twinship another. yeah and one of the things that that i uh, noticed is still missing in my my 
whatever psyche, my my myself, is humor. <laughs> and funny enough, humor is one of those things that when we're trying to tell a new story, when everything looks like shit around us, when the whole team is just struggling, and then one person's able to crack a joke that's funny, it can break through and we can hold the emotion of what it is that we're doing. And yet we create this space to be able to see the folly. Laugh at the story. Laugh too. at the story. Yeah. In this day and age, as we're shifting our stories and trying to make sense of the world, those that can find humor, that can crack a joke in the midst of all of this, can find a little relief. And, and it's my opinion that it's a way to regulate some of that nervous system hijacking to be able to see it all clearer and to be able to put some things down within your own story that feel most connected to who you are right now. Well, I wanted to give a personal example, but I wanted to first go back to yours. You mentioned this really intimate relation with this doppelganger twin, call it what you will. Mm. And you brought up big loss, but you didn't say what happened, which speaks to how powerful that story obviously is because <laughs> you didn't tell the story. Yeah, it is powerful. It's a story that's difficult to tell. The He developed leukemia and for a year, we, myself and his wife and my wife, basically were his family structure would support and encourage and cheerlead and cry and all of the things that go along with that type of treatment plan. And his, his leukemia was just, just too potent for his body to deal with and to the point where he had the, like a bone marrow transplant. And usually you get at least, you know, three to six months of buffer. And he, got zero buffer and went into hospice fairly quick after we thought, okay, this is going to buy us a little time and maybe mm. it'll work. Mm. So the trauma of being the last one there to then kiss his forehead as he was cold laying you know, in his own living room is it has a deep, deep traumatic blow for, for me, of course. But how it relates to this conversation is that we could crack each other up mm. in a different language. We created our own language. We had weird little isms and weird ways of describing things. And even in really hard times, we were able to come up with just silly, but we thought, of course, that it was smart, <laughs> smartly silly. But that doesn't exist so much in my world. And I'm realizing that I never updated my story. Mm. Uh, my story was that I'm able to do that. And I haven't been able to do that. I used to be mm. able to do that. I used to, I used to hold most things lightly, even though I tried really hard. And, and uh, I've noticed that that's when things go more difficult, I have now less capacity to you turn the corner of my mouth up a little bit and say something smart ass in that moment. <laughs> and of course, is that the point of loss that you recognize what you have? It's, it's like, why can't we appreciate it yeah. when we have it? And then, yeah, that way of, of being able to laugh at the story, even as it's unfolding, even as you're in it, even if it's what other people would label as, as tragic, or even you in, in retrospect would label as tragic. I guess is is what you're saying is if you can do that, that's a, a higher power not to be not not to be underappreciated. Yeah, and I think it's a practice as well. Uh, if you look at Stoicism, for example, the Stoics meditated on their own death, their own demise, on all the worst possible things that could happen, and then had the freedom to just live. And I think that we all tend to forget how fragile life is 
and how hard it is for many, many millions of people on the planet right now, and just how flimsy the safety nets that we construct really are with our 401ks and with our health plan and the forecast for our business, the expectations for our children and our spouse or others. And not too often does that reminder of the impermanence really smack us across the face. And even then, it doesn't usually sink in. We go into more of a routine-based protocol on the whole as a society for how to deal with death. It's not something we see. It's pushed away. And there are a lot of things that make us feel like society is supposed to be shiny and gleamy and including social media, including commercials and advertising and corporations, et cetera. So it's the story that we feel like we need to tell a story that's got a nice snappiness to it and some direction and a story of hope and, and all of that. But then there are there might be an argument be made for not really clinging to stories on the whole very often at all. <laughs> and I think that's a little bit more of a radical approach, but it's one that I think that when people can surrender a little bit more and trust their stuff, as I like to say, then there's more opportunity to embrace and to appreciate what is the only thing that ever exists, and that's the present moment. Yeah, I mean, you were getting me so down (laughs) with the story you were telling, but then I did start to find it actually calming and relaxing. The more downbeat story, because, you know, reminded me of this adage, happiness is reality minus expectations. Hmm. And if you're like, yeah, life is hard, and you're going to die, and you're going to suffer first, <laughs> mm. and you're going to have a fair amount of loss. That's a tough story. But is it? Because then in each moment, when things are okay, maybe you're like, oh, wow, this is a moment that I can savor. And when things are not okay, you're not like, oh, I did something wrong. I suck. You're like, well, that's how things are. That is, it's been a regression to mean. And so I'm ending up with a wry smile after all. Hmm. The story that I've been going through, and there's a number, of course, stories. I've already mentioned so many, but I'll give you one example and maybe you can help me think through it. So we talked last time about my writing life and the life of a writer. And part of that is a job, it's bizarre, right? I'm often like, well, I don't have colleagues. I don't have coworkers. I don't have bosses. I have a profession, but I'm not sure exactly if I have a job. (laughs) And I get paid in these crazy ways where, first of all, that I get paid and I'm a writer is amazing. (laughs) And it's not like it's happened that often. But when it happens for a book, I get paid max once every year or two or three for work in advance or for work that was done in the past. And so that might mean I get paid some lump sum and then literally have no other income for 18, 20 months. And I'm used to that up and down. And again, just grateful that there's any up and have lived that way for close to a decade now. But it's playing mind games with me, especially now, I think, where so many people are stressed out about money and the economy. And I'm like, I, I don't have a job. <laughs> I'm a, I've gone from, I, you know, I used to say, I'm a writer, I'm self-employed. That's what you have to say when you fill out, who's your employer self? And now I'm like, my joke is that I'm self unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) Who's my unemployer and self? And so 
I've just noticed in my head, I feel like I've been fired even though I have never had a job. <laughs> mm. And I feel like I've gone from self-employed to self-unemployed. And that's just you know one story, but that's one of the stories I'm telling. And I guess he can help me make sense of it. And maybe I, I've, I've realized the three questions I, that I could only think of two. One was just, <laughs> the first one was, what is the story I'm telling? Mm-hmm. Two is, is it true? And three, if so, is there another story I could be telling that is also true? Yeah, I, I feel like I might, after hearing what you just said, start with three. I like it. It's cute and catchy to say self-unemployed, but it feels like it doesn't feel so good. As you said, feels like I've been fired. And so what's another story that you could tell that's also true? I need to get a job. <laughs> yeah. I mean, is the, is the thing. And then it's like, well, but how? All those mysteries that you had, how does writing work? How does it really go behind the scenes? I'm like, I should ask people that have a regular job. How does that all work? I've got no idea how you guys do what you do. What, you look at the paper? The classifieds? I'm just used to sitting in a room and like thinking of something or bumping into somebody. Like, yeah, that's a good story. And then just talking it up and writing it up and yeah. saying, ah, I got a good story for you, editor. And somehow that's, I've been able to like walk across the river on those stones that I drop. Mm-hmm. But now it's hard to pop into people. I don't know what the world is. And I tell all these stories that build on that story, right? Like, oh, I can't bump into people because they're zombies or I'm a zombie. Mm-hmm. Or the editors aren't there because the economy's crashing. Or I need this to come together sooner. Or I'm not in solidarity with everybody else. This is what we're all doing. We're part of the story. We're all just trying to figure out how to make the money work. And I need to hop into that cycle, even if it's a cycle of anxiety and fear. And obviously that's not the positive, what is the other story I could be telling if true, but I'm just trying to articulate some of those other stories. So I don't know, give me, give me a rough draft of another story that's also true. (laughs) Yeah. It's also true that many people are in need right now that didn't realize they were in need before. Hmm. It's also true that communication is probably more important than ever before. It's also true that we've never been more connected digitally than we are right now. And another story could be along those lines. Well, where is my skill set needed right now? And we shifted from what I have to do for basic survival, I have to get a job, to where am I needed? And so by allowing yourself the permission to tell that new story, it's an open-ended story. It's a story of adventure. It's a story of intrigue. And it really opens up curiosity in your brain, which is connected to a system called the seeking system, which is incredibly important for us to continue to explore and be adventurous and want to make new stories. And so I would start by, by if the sun is your ability to write at like a professional, I mean, I would, I would turn what I do professionally into more of a service-minded thing and say, okay, where are my skills needed right now? Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think by doing that, you activate that system and you keep yourself out of getting hijacked where it's, oh God, I need to step up. The walls are closing in. Money better come in soon. I mean, as soon as all that happens, we know the stories we tell and none of them yeah. are very productive. So this story allows your skill to still have a value because it does. And then it also then turns your camera outward and you're looking around, where can I be of value in the capacity of communication or what my skills can offer? And it straddles that line we talked about earlier between perseverance and embracing a transition. And something that's also true is, yeah, this has happened before. This always happens. You, It's a weird profession being a writer, writing a book. It's one of the only jobs where as soon as you succeed, you're fired, mm. you're out of work. Like as soon as I work years and years and years, I finish the book, all right, I'm unemployed. <laughs> and 
then bump into another job or topic. And it's like, well, the perseverance school is just stick in it, stay open, see what you find. And the transition school is maybe look for somebody you can help rather than a story that can help you or, you know, help you find that. And I don't know if that's, if that's a bridge that, that you see, does that resonate? I see, I see that bridge. Yeah. And the, and then the confidence motivation story is I'm probably best positioned than most people, than most people in society to be able to navigate this loss. Cause I, this is my cycle anyway, I'm used to this. And so I can actually be a mentor for others who are not used to not having a steady paycheck, who aren't used to that cyclical firing and non-traditional way of living that now has been forced on all of us. You're actually really good at it and you have probably a lot to share about it. So maybe that's something to write about, whereas you could share that. And that could be really helpful for people who are really struggling right now because they've never had to do anything close to this. You mentioned dropping the story too. Mm. And that's a powerful practice to say, what's the story? And just can I, can I drop it and, and be? I think that was in some of the practices you were citing from, was it Scott Barry Kaufman? Mm-hmm. Can you repeat those? The ways to be able to drop the story requires you to have these meta motivations. And that type of person in Scott Barry Kaufman's thesis of his book called Transcendence, which is he poured over Abraham Maslow, who's a human psychologist, poured over all of his old writings and etc. Maslow died fairly young and didn't wasn't able to see some of these things through but these meta motivations include devotion to a calling outside oneself a seeking of peak experiences a commitment to the values of being and these being values include truth goodness beauty justice meaningfulness playfulness aliveness, excellence, simplicity, elegance, and wholeness. And those are the goals. They're not a byproduct of winning the top prize or becoming CEO or hoisting the trophy. Those are the goals. And to me, they... They promote incredible agility and flexibility and resilience because these are all things that you can take one step towards. Those pebbles you spoke about, you can start throwing small pebbles out in front of you as opposed to knowing your way back and really embodying what it means to be a whole person by. And, and demonstrating that just within this small next step. It makes me think of a fairy tale, but you're picking like the moral of your story before what the story is. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you're saying, I want the moral of my story to be this. And then when you're faced with a decision, go, well, that's the moral of the story or your situation. What's the story? It's like, yeah, the story will write itself, but let me move with that as my prime mover mm-hmm. if that's being or that's truth or that's goodness i don't know if that's always possible but i think it's inspiring it's inspirational at least to me yeah to me too and it can be uh, part of a, a more general story around being and i think that that can influence and encourage some of the smaller line text and print that you're going to put out to the, into the world. But from that, from that place, I think it can be super powerful and with no story at all with the, just as you say, it can be an incredible practice as well. But one that I think requires probably more discipline than having a story. 
<laughs> so I don't think that's for the, I don't think that's for everyone to not have a connection to sort of the scaffolding of what they value and how they want to identify. And I think we find people we want to share a story with. And it's like, well, what story, what group of people, what story are they telling? Not what charges my emotions, but what I, I do have choices. I do have discretion. And again, there could be multiple things that are true. There, Of course, there are always multiple things that are true. There can be contradictory things that are true. Mm. But what is the story you want to live in long term? And is it? fear-based? Is it inspiration-based? Is it community-based? Is it individual-based? Is it humble? Is it stoic? Is it sensitive? I think that those are, those are lenses mm -hmm. to examine the stories we're being told, too. Of course, we didn't get into that at all. Media, <laughs> it's another discussion, but what are the stories we're fed what are the stories our families have told us? What are the stories of a particular country of origin or culture or community? And recognize that those have been told over and over in our ears and our eyes. And that's something to be aware of, at least for that. Is this true? And if so, is there something that's also true that I might want to be listening to instead? Mm. I like that. Wrap us up. What do we do with what story am I in? What's our next steps or ways to understand this whole topic? I mean, I really like what you were saying. Knowing which stories you're telling, knowing which stories are true, which stories you could, what, what would also be true as well at, at the same time as this story. I think it's really critical right now for people to unpack the meaning behind their story and to hold lightly the intensity for the connection to that story. And at the same time, make note of the stories that feel inspiring that feel connected to a, a deeper place within that make you laugh and smile and that remind you of what it is that you're doing here and as simply as as you can do it literally writing a line in the middle of a piece of paper and starting to bullet point the action words connected to the stories that activate you and that feel that you feel that deeper warmth and you feel that connection and on the other side of the ledger to write those bullet points of the stories that feel that you feel contracted or limited or maybe they're fraudulent or that they just no longer serve and from that very basic place using language and imagery start to see about weaving together a tapestry to create a story for these times for now and that process i believe is the beginning of how to feel more connected and centered and in touch and of service to your own humanity and those around you as well. And I think for me, one of the most punishing questions is like, well, where am I in the story? Am I far enough along? Am I in the right place? And it's like, of course you are. <laughs> you're, you're only ever in now, as you said. It reminds me of a writing teacher. He was like, do you guys know the most important part of a, of a story? And we were like, what? What? The end? It's the end, right? He's like, no. We're like, oh, the beginning? It's like, no. I'm like, well, what? He's like, Every part. <laughs> and we're like, oh, uh, yeah. The point is you can't just be like, well, this is the bad part. It's just the bridge between the parts that are important. It's like, no, every part's the important part. And this is the most important part of your story too, right now, wherever right now is. There are no bridges. 
There's only a path step by step. And it's true. It's, it's really an overdone thing to say present moment, but it is the only place we genuinely live. And that couldn't be a story. How do I fully embrace each moment I'm in and leaving some of the room for improvisation? Thank you for improvising with me. Mm-hmm. I also just like that idea of, of you talked about the humor with your uh, beloved friend, just also the idea of holding things more lightly by being like, oh, we're improvising. <laughs> mm. This makes sense. We're improvising. <laughs> That's just true over and over again. Well, yeah, it's just improv. Think- we're not filming this. <laughs> <laughs> There's no script. That's fine. Uh-huh. It's just improv. Uh-huh. Well, well, we'll go scene and then we'll just start again. Uh-huh. Does anyone have a suggestion? <laughs> yeah. uh, place of work. Someone you might meet on a cruise. Yeah. I'd go from there. Global cool. pandemic. What do you Global say? Global pandemic. Yeah. yeah, what do you say? Yes, Ed. Yes, Ed. Great. I'm in. I'm in. <laughs> well, I've got a zombie story to get back to. Thank you for <laughs> everyone for listening and joining us. We're so grateful to you for joining your story with us and let us know your questions, comments, ideas, suggestions, and of course, stories. Hmm. And we'll keep the conversation going from there. Thanks, everyone. Stimulus and Response is hosted by Damon Valentino and Jeremy M. Smith and produced by Matt Mullins at Black Rooster Productions Please rate, review, and share the show and please join us next time for another stimulating exploration of the best parts and best ways of being human and being alive